Thank you, Sarah. <clears throat> well, good morning. My name is Adam Casel. I'm the vision and administration pastor here on staff. Uh, so a number of years ago, some of you know this, remember this, I was working at Fifth Third Bank uh, in Cincinnati, and I, I was in one of the branches. I was in an office building. Uh, there were a couple thousand people in this building. Uh, I was in a pretty good-sized department. I'd become um, friends with a few of the people I was working with, and we would regularly uh, eat lunch together in our cafeteria. And one day, I remember there was this new guy in our department, and he was around our age, so we uh, invited him to come have lunch with us, and uh, we were just asking him questions, kind of getting to know him. And one of the, uh, two of the guys at the table, one was from Detroit and another was from Boston, uh, but somebody else at the table asked him, you know, where did you go to high school? Because we found out this guy was also from Cincinnati. And the guy from the Detroit area interjects, Everybody from Cincinnati asks each other that. That's so weird. And the guy from Boston was like, yeah, that's, that's really weird. No, nobody in Boston cares about that. <laughs> and I, I'd heard that one other time from a, a really good friend of ours, and it, it kind of stuck with me. Well, uh, maybe, maybe you had a similar experience or this other story that I have. So my parents... Um, our high school sweethearts. Aww. They both grew up in a really small town, a small farming community in the central uh, part of Michigan. And uh, I mean, it's so small, it was a one four-way stop town. And uh, so because my parents grew up there and, and with all their siblings, whenever I would go back to visit grandparents and, and went out, uh, we were kind of in the town with grandparents, Inevitably, we would see somebody that they knew, all right? And so they, you'd have to stop and have conversation. And then they would look at my sister and me and point to us and say, whose are these? Or some version of that. Who do they belong to? Anybody from a small community? That story resonates. Yes. Maybe when you meet somebody, one of those two questions are one of the first things that you want to know about somebody. Or you might be somebody who wants to know where did you study? Where did you go to college? Or what did you study? Or one of the first questions is, what do you do? What's your job? What's your profession? Or we may want to know, who do you know? Now, these, any of these questions, where did you go to school? Uh, what did you study? Where do you live? Those can be honest-to-goodness relational questions. It's, it's a way that we get to know one another. They could also be status symbols. Right? So if you meet somebody from Indianapolis, you're talking to them, so where do you live? Oh, Carmel. All right. Very nice. Okay. All right. Lawrence. Okay. I'm saying that because that's where I live. Every culture, and even subculture, has status symbols. I'm sure one of those questions I went through resonates with you. This morning, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. If you have a Bible with you, I invite you to, to turn there, whether um, in paperback or digital. We do have some up on these subwoofers up front if you want to grab one. Now, because Corinth 
was a city, had a, had a, had a culture, like many cities today, uh, there were status symbols for that city. Now, Corinth was a true cosmopolitan city uh, for the ancient world. The U.S. has three true cosmopolitans. New York, L.A., what's, what do you guys think is the third? I, I heard Chicago, that's right. New York, L.A., Chicago. That's where all the different nationalities and ethnicities live super close together and interact with each other on a regular day. Corinth was... Uh, part of the reason why they became a cosmopolitan is they were a port city. So people traveling, carrying goods from one place to another regularly would stop in Corinth. It was diverse in every single way. Socioeconomically, you had the rich and the poor living next to each other. Uh, because it's a port city, you have people who wor worship different gods and are a part of different religions uh, there and, and different temples would be set up because if you're traveling by sea, you want to make sure the sea god is happy with you, right? So you you get there and you you thank the sea your respective sea god for safe travels um, and make another offering for the rest of your trip. Because of all these factors, is also an incredibly wealthy city. One of the high values for the city of Corinth was was wisdom. They were impressed by great speakers uh, who would charge money for people to listen to their, their philosophy or their views on life. As a church, much like the city, the church was still very impressed with wisdom. They, that was a thing that uh, was still a lot like their culture. They also were highly impressed with the Holy Spirit and the different manifestations of the Spirit, primarily tongues. That's why Paul talks quite a bit about tongues uh, in this letter. Some other things to know about this church. It was a very immature church. There was a lot of division uh, within the church. I'll talk about that a little bit later. Incest was happening in the church. They were abusing the Lord's Supper, and the rich were taking advantage of the poor. Again, all believers within this church. A cautionary tale for us, a, re a reminder, is that the presence of the gifts of the Spirit does not equal maturity, either individually or collectively. Right? Maturity is about looking like Jesus. And for Paul, there was one way to that. And it was through the most important symbol to him. Now, before I get there, you know, organizations, their logos are, are their symbols. I thought about putting some, some different logos up for us going through. And, and organizations will change their logo, their symbol over time. For example, McDonald's used to have the golden arches and, and McDonald's written right through it. Now you just need the golden arches. You know exactly what it is. Nike had their swoosh and Nike. Now you just need the swoosh. You know what it is. Or, you know, they, they may, so they change because of, of popularity and to stay current. Or it could symbolize a change uh, in values. For example, Kentucky Fried Chicken. 
once we found out fried food was bad, it's no longer Kentucky Fried Chicken. It's just KFC. That way to forget about, forget about that it's fried, still, still deep fried. The church's primary symbol, which was most important to Paul, and the way to maturity has never changed. It's the cross. And this morning, the most, imp- most important thing to, for you to take away this morning is that the cross of Jesus Christ conf- confounds the world's system. It is confusing to, to the world that our Savior and King is the one who chose the cross. And when we follow his example, that stands out to the world. We're going to look at this morning how the the cross challenges individual and cultural values, and the cross hamstrings cosmic rulers. Now, I'm going to read all of 1 Corinthians 2, but we're only going to focus on four verses this morning. So look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul writes, When I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. We do, however, speak a wisdom among the mature, but not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. On the contrary, we speak God's hidden wisdom in a mystery, a wisdom God predestined before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age knew this wisdom, because if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no human heart conceived— God has prepared these things for those who love him. Now, God has revealed these things to us by the Spirit, since the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except his spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who comes from God, so that we may understand what has been freely given to us by God. We also speak these things, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual things to spiritual people. But the person without the spirit does not receive What comes from God's spirit, because it is foolishness to him. He is not able to understand it, since it is evaluated spiritually. The spiritual person, however, can evaluate everything, and yet he himself 
can be evaluate, cannot be evaluated by anyone. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for choosing the cross. And as we as we look at that this morning, may we see who you are and hear what you have for us this morning. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So as I said, the cross of Jesus Christ confounds the world system by challenging individual and cultural values. So our, our focus for this is just is verse 2. Again, Paul says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. All of Paul's letters, all of his theology is about Jesus Christ. It's about looking at the cross, the resurrection, and now how he reigns and rules over all. So for Paul to say, hey, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus and him crucified is a massive statement because Paul had the pedigree. He was uh, formally educated in Tarsus. If, you, if you're not uh, fluent in you know, ancient uh, educational systems, <laughs> Tarsus is essentially Ivy League education. He was a Pharisee. That, that was his spiritual formation. He was a citizen of Rome. So he had all these things in his favor that he could appeal to or rely on. But, you know, as he tells, as he tells the, uh, the Philippians, he considers it rubbish. That's a strong word. Paul's focus was on, on Jesus and him crucified. Because he didn't want the Corinthians' faith to be dependent on impressive rhetoric or the human ability but seeing what Jesus did on the cross. As I said earlier, at that time, and in Corinth, speakers or philosophers would charge money for people to come listen to them. And they would draw attention to themselves and try to impress their audience with how much they knew and how, uh, how impressive their philosophy was. But for Paul, his, he wants to point attention to Jesus. Don't look at me, look at Jesus. He'll say later in this letter, you know, if you're going to look at me, look at me how I imitate Jesus. Paul is subverting the power structure in Corinth via the cross. Because Paul's own personal power structure had been subverted by the cross. He knew that his formal education, his spiritual formation up to that point, if it if it didn't include Jesus, it meant nothing. I want to take some time and, and think about what the cross means. Now, this may be refreshing information, but it's important because this isn't basic. It's foundational. Right? We don't graduate from the cross. 
It's, we never leave that behind. It, it never doesn't matter. So the cross was, again, as I said, it was the logo, the symbol for the early church. And it meant something. It meant something to believers and non-believers. As a reminder, it's probably the most humiliating death a person could experience. It was so bad, Rome would not crucify their own citizens. A person died by asphyxiation and exhaustion. They often would be on the cross for several days. As as a person's arms were outstretched and the weight of their body holding them down, they couldn't breathe. And so they would have just this little block that their feet were on that they could push themselves up slightly to be able to breathe. And then their legs would get tired and so they would have to let themselves back down. As I said, it could, la- it could go on for several days. To look to a God who chose the cross that's why it's foolishness to the, to the Greeks and a stumbling block for the Jews, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1. It's foolish and a stumbling block to rejoice in that. The cross shows us who God is. A God who is willing to endure the cross to be with us. He went to horrific lengths so that nothing could be held against us. That the enemy, who is referred to as the accuser of the church, could not have anything against us. The cross shows that there are two wisdoms, as, as Paul talks about. The wisdom of the upside-down kingdom. That God, the, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, became a servant of all and died this death on our behalf. And it only requires trust. In a time when wisdom or power or money or sex was what was impressive the message of the gospel was just trust. Put your trust in that. Paul says that God's foolishness is greater than the world's wisdom, and it looks like foolishness to the world. Archaeologists un- uncovered um, graffiti, ancient graffiti, from like around the second century. And the picture is a uh, a person with a human body and a donkey head on a cross and another person next to them worshiping, and it says, Alexa Menos worships his God. So whoever it is likely making fun of Alexa Menos that he would worship a crucified God. It's an oxymoron to look at the cross and at the same time say, Jesus is Lord. The cross has several intersections. 
It's the intersection of the greatest religion the world had known to that point and the greatest government the world had ever known to that point. This isn't negative against Judaism or, or blaming Jewish people because God had set it up to point people to Jesus, but it can't save. But both groups work together to crucify Jesus. It's the intersection of human and divine relationships. So it addresses the human-divine relationship and the human-to-human relationships. It's the intersection of the, the individual and the collective. So we're not just saved from something, our sin, but we're saved into something. What we're saved into is a new family, a new kingdom. I love how Paul says it in Colossians 1 that we've been transferred from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of light. And this family is multi-ethnic, multi-generational, and one that equally affirms men and women. The personal relationship that we have with God is a part of a family or people. For New Testament authors, the, the greatest divide is Jewish-Gentile division, and the cross breaks that down. Any, any, any other racial or ethnic barriers that they might, there might be, the cross breaks those down. Again, the cross addresses socioeconomic, gender, and racial divides. One of the a couple of the big divisions in Corinth was socioeconomic and theological. And Paul says the cross does away with all of that. The cross is also an intersection of love and holiness. Love that the, there's no lengths that this God won't go to to be with us. And yet because he is holy deals with our sin. As I said earlier, there's nothing that can be held against us. So that's what the cross says and means. The cross also does something. We are formed by the cross. Others have talked about we are a cruciform people. Matthew 16, 24, Jesus says to, this, to the disciples, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The cross challenges individual and cultural values. The dying, the taking up of our, of our cross is about dying to personal desires, or at least being open-handed with them. To say, God, here are the things I want. I'm going to trust your timing and your wisdom on when or if these would be good for me. So we're not just brought into the kingdom by the cross, but it's the ethic we live by. Paul will say in, in 2 Corinthians, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. 
the one who had it all laid it aside in order for us to be able to share in that with him. Last week when Randy talked about Micah 6, 1 to 8, and, and focused on doing justice, part of doing justice is, is taking what was to our advantage and, and using that to benefit the disadvantaged. That's what Jesus did. Took all that he had laid it aside in order for us to be with him. Over the last year and a half or so, we've had this vision, and part of that is knowing who we are in Christ. And part of that is we are the people of the cross. We're not victims, but we're victors in Christ who use our victory to help others. We are not slaves, but children who ask our Father to bless us for the benefit of the world. We are not unloved or unlovable, but the deeply loved bride who implores the bridegroom to rise up on our behalf or on behalf of others. So a question for ourself is, what symbol impresses me about others? Is it what they do, who they know, uh, where they've studied, where they live? What do I look to besides them being in the image of God or if they're another believer, that we're on equal standing. We're on level ground at the foot of the cross. So as I said, the cross of Jesus confounds the world system. And on a personal level, it frees us up to not hold on to what was to our benefit or to our pain. Paul had lots of things to his benefit to why he shouldn't lay it aside to follow Jesus. In Acts, we meet two individuals. One, a, a very successful businesswoman named Lydia. And she puts her trust in Jesus. She uses what was to her advantage, her business, and at that time her disadvantage, a female, and lays those aside following Jesus. Early on in Acts, Philip meets the Ethiopian eunuch, a man who rightfully had a lot of pain. And yet, he lays that aside and follows Jesus. And church history shows that Ethiopia was incredibly open to the gospel when apostles went there, largely because of this man. So this most important symbol of our faith is a horrific sign of death because it challenges individual and cultural values. Also, the cross of Jesus Christ confounds the world system by hamstringing cosmic rulers. These are the other three verses that we're going to look at. Uh, it's verses 6 through 8. I'll read them again. We do, however, speak a wisdom among the mature, not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. On the contrary, we speak God's wis hidden wisdom in a mystery, a wisdom God predestined before the ages for our glory. 
None of the rulers of this age knew this wisdom, because if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now, the language here is not of human rulers, but of spiritual beings who have authority over areas. Now, in a majority of Western churches, we don't talk about the spiritual forces at play in our world. There's a number of reasons for it. First, let's be honest, it sounds weird, right? It sounds like fantasy. It's not aligned with our common accepted worldview, which is our, our common worldview is, is materialistic, meaning the things that we can, can measure, can touch, and, and feel with our senses or perceive with our senses, that's what ha- is more real. But as a reminder, our faith is about a God who became man, was born of a virgin, was fully God, fully man, and when he died, he rose from the dead. So if we're, if we're willing to believe those things, maybe there's some other spiritual beings who are opposed to us. We may be hesitant because we think it could lead to a, a lack of accountability, some version of, well, the devil made me do it. The scriptures don't affirm that. There's very much human responsibility. A couple of other instances that might further support this theory. There's two countries uh, in, the, in the Far East that the gospel came to at about the same time. One of them um, has less than 1% of the population is Christian. The other, I don't remember the percentages, at least 40% are believers. Those countries are Japan and South Korea. Could there be spiritual opposition impacting that? Also, we see more overt demonic activity in other parts of the world. I know it's here in the U.S., but there's more overt kinds. Why? Could there be something about these spiritual beings at play In 2 Corinthians 2, Paul talks about restoring a believer to the church and how we don't want to be outwitted by Satan because we're not ignorant of his, of his schemes. For a long time, that really bothered me because I'm like, Paul, I don't know Satan's schemes. Help me out. Uh, what I came to realize is largely the enemy deals in deceit and division. A kingdom divided against itself, as Jesus said, cannot stand. That's true of any kingdom or any group. What if our church was divided? What if this half of the room never interacted with this half simply because of where we sat? I don't think we would last very long. The enemy likes to isolate us and it and at least make us think that we have opponents where we don't, or to create true opposition. Friends, I submit to you that many of the issues plaguing the church and our nation and the world are actually spiritual. And the ultimate solution is the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't mean we can't or don't do anything about it in the natural But I think our plans will be frustrated if there isn't a spiritual change, which only comes 
by the cross. The racism, ethnocentrism, and nationalism, meaning we think America is great, greater than any other country and, and we're inherently better. That's what I mean by nationalism. So the racism, ethnocentrism, and nationalism that exists and some of us experience is a spiritual problem. Sexism is a spiritual problem. The exploitation of children and women is a spiritual problem. Abortion is a spiritual problem. There's many other issues that I could name, but these kind of are top of mind because they become divisive. And they're often related to political affiliation. And as followers of Jesus, it shouldn't be that way. We're not limited to the, our political party of preference. Because Jesus is over all of that. We should hope for and pray for legislation that in, ensures that all have the same freedoms. And that may deter some people or bring justice for victims, but it doesn't solve the ultimate issue. These issues are spiritual and they're heart problems. And I believe that there are actually spiritual forces perpetuating those because it keeps division. Uh, a number of years ago, I, I read a book called Evil and the Justice of God. And in there um, was how an account how after the Nazi regime ended that there were many German citizens reported almost a blindness, that they didn't realize their Jewish neighbors were gone. Now, some of us may look at that and scoff and say they chose not to know, and, and maybe. But I think it's also possible from the scriptures that there was a blindness. For Paul, the only way to solve these issues and render them impotent is by the cross of Jesus Christ. As I said earlier, the Corinthians, they were impressed with wisdom. Paul's saying, if you want wisdom, look to the cross. Right? It's greater than the rulers of this age, and it caused, the cross caused them to do the very thing God wanted them to do, to put Jesus up there. The cross is the way to defeat the powers that be. Uh, when Carrie and I got married and our uh, respective libraries merged, there was a book she had called The Persecutor. Uh, it was a, by, this, by an autobiography by a man named Sergei Kordakov. And he was um, a part of the Soviet secret police and in a task force that was trying to root out underground churches. And so they would go... To, to church, to, they would find where these house churches were meeting and pull the people out and beat them uh, and often and kill many of them. And what stood out to him was how the, the persecuted believers suffered well. The usual tactics that this police force would, was using didn't work. It didn't work with the Christians. Go ahead, take my life. I know where I'll be. Take all of my stuff. It's not mine anyways. 
take away my job, my brothers and sisters will support me. That's one of the ways that the cross subverts these cosmic rulers, hamstrings, these spiritual powers. So the cross confounds the cosmic rulers because we're able to be free from the prevailing value system of where we live. What I suggest a way that we can walk this out is that whenever there's a well-known tragedy, oftentimes a shooting of some sort, we see two common responses. Some of those saying, well, our thoughts and prayers are with those people and those who criticize that view. But I think we, that's where we start, is with prayer, but it's only one step. That we pray for comfort. Prayer is the confounding weapon of the confounding cross. It's not a natural response, and it's the most effective weapon that we have against spiritual forces. We can pray for justice and true peace, shalom, which is wholeness, healing, well-being, and, in, and, and not stop there. What I propose is this next prayer, God, what's mine to do? And then we do it. Because I'll be honest, I get numb hearing all these stories. I don't think to ask these things. I don't think about to pray or interact with those who might be impacted. But I think that's part of this cruciform life, following a crucified king and seeing these spiritual powers be subverted. So Amy and uh, any of our ministry team members, if you could come forward. So as, as we wrap up, again, the cross of Jesus Christ confounds the world's system. It challenges individual and cultural values. The cross hamstrings cosmic rulers. The cross has been the timeless symbol of the Christian church since its formation. So this morning is ways to respond. Maybe this morning, as I was talking about the different things that we value, that you realize you're looking to other things for yourself or for others to know who you are outside of the cross. So again, are we looking to the cross to know who we are? Perhaps this morning we're holding on to some benefits of what life has given us or pain instead of the cross. Maybe we're looking only to natural solutions for supernatural problems. Uh, This morning as we gathered beforehand and asked what um, we felt like God wanted to say, a couple of things that I think might be pertinent for us this morning. 
One is a reminder of, of Jesus's faithfulness. So if this morning you need to be reminded of Jesus's faithfulness, I invite you to come forward uh, and get prayer. Um, another was the word peril. If you are feeling overwhelmed or there's something really difficult or heavy for you right now, we want to pray for you. Also, the idea of, of one thing. We, we sang that um, better is one day because we want to remember that we, we have one primary love in Jesus and the other things can distract us. And so are we looking to the, the one thing, the one person? And a reminder that God's love is strong. Nothing can hinder that, that love. Just want to affirm what Adam was saying. We had some more words come in uh, concerning this idea of better is one day in his courts. So a court is something that is orderly and uh, his timing is orderly. So we can relax and uh, the Lord will provide uh, what you need when you need it. So we don't need to be running outside of this in our heads. We're going to be trying to create our own provision, but his provision is more orderly. But uh, the Lord sees himself in you and he sees his heart reflected in your heart. He loves who you are and who you are becoming. So keep seeking him. He views you as a beloved, cherished, celebrated child. Uh, and the Lord Almighty, he yearns to help you soar to new heights in him. He yearns to teach you how to soar over the problems, over the stress, and over the conflict filled warfare in your life. Just like eagles who have junk stuck to their wings, some of you walked in this morning with grief, stress, unforgiveness, trauma, exhaustion stuck on your wings. Surrender and come to the Lord. Allow him to come and heal your wings uh, up here at ministry time so you can soar to new heights. So if any of that resonated with you or if there's anything else that you walked in those doors with today, ministry time is literally a place where you can have an encounter with the Lord and have your life changed uh, by just time and prayer with people that love you. Thanks, Nick. So if any of that resonates, I invite you to come forward and, and get prayer. Also, if we have any other ministry team folks here um, or anybody comfortable praying for others, please pop up. So we have um, different options.
So feel free to hang out if you would like. Um, if you want to receive prayer, our, our prayer teams will be here. Music will be playing for a while. If you need to leave, grab your kids. Uh, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance and give you rest. Have a great week.